0: Welcome to Ieq Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed.
1: Changed, good day, wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio, for Friday, December 5th, 2008. This week, episode 105 comes to you from beautiful Studio B in beautiful Coriopolis, Pennsylvania. My name is Joe Hughes of Radio Joe. Back with me in the studio this week is the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnick. It's always my pleasure. Great to work with you, Joe. Good day, Cliff. And at the controls is the wingman, Chris Boisell. Good afternoon. Oh, good day, Chris. Our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow, is recuperating from his knee replacement. I want to shout out to him and I hope he has a speedy recovery and gets back on the air with us here next week. Today's segments include the microband trivia question. We've got Ronald Gotts, MD, PhD. We will do a little halftime segment. We've got some uh, great conferences coming up next year and some people that have asked us to uh, put out a couple announcements on that. We'll do that. We'll bring Dr. Gotts back on, and then uh, if we've got uh, anybody with us for the roundup, we'll bring them on as well. We've been updating that uh, www.iaqradio website every week. Check out the blog at iaqradio.com. Before we get started, let's thank our sponsors.
0: Our newest sponsor is Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years at
1: legends-enviro.com. And Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com. Indoor Environment Connections,
0: the newspaper for the IEQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information available
1: at ieconnections.com. Ease Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Ease is first in drying solutions at DRI-EAZ.com. John Don Products, where
0: restoration and abatement contractors shop at JONDON.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services.
1: All right. To contact the show, you can either call in on the phone at 724 444 7444. Our show ID is 1547. Then all you have to do is press the number one to join the show. You can also download the show by going to our website, iaqradio.com, and follow the link that says go to the show, or you can get the show from iTunes. Don't forget, we also have available those IICRC continuing education credits or IAQ council renewal credits by emailing me and requesting a quiz My email is joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com, or you can also email us, make suggestions, uh, suggest guests, ask questions. The Z-Man's email is cliffzlotnik at unsmoke.com. Our uh, email addresses are also on the homepage of the website. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Let's turn it over to the Z-Man for this week's Microband Trivia Question.
0: Thanks, Joe. Well, we're sorry to report no correct answers for last week's trivia question. The microband trivia question for Friday, December 5th, 2008, because our guest is from the medical field. We have what I guess I would call a medical question. Which military and political leader is closely associated with the development of the ambulance?
1: Hmm, military and political. Very good. That was two weeks ago, by the way, listeners. To answer the question, go to the IAQRadio.com website, click on the link to trivia and put in your answers, and we'll send you out a nice prize. I'm going to turn it back over to Cliff to introduce today's guest. Okay.
0: Uh, Today's guest is Ronald E. Gotts, M.D., Ph.D. He is the Chief Executive Officer of the International Center for Toxicology and Medicine and the Chief Science Officer of Building Health Sciences in Rockville, Maryland. He received his A.B. in Chemistry and his M.D. degree, from the University of Pennsylvania. He received his PhD in pharmacology from the University of Southern California of Medicine. Since 1975, he has devoted his professional activities to solving clients' problems in environmental medicine, toxicology, causation analysis, and risk communication. Dr. Gotz has focused on the scientific methods for assessing causation of diseases and allegedly associated with chemical and biological agents. He has assisted hundreds of clients in analysis analysis, strategy, and testimony in chemical and mold injury claims, regulatory matters, mass tort claims, environmental and workplace exposure issues, and risk communication. He is the author of six books, chapters in six books, and more than 70 articles on biochemistry, toxicology. Mold and Mold Toxins in Insurance and Legal Literature. His most recent books are Chemical Sensitivity, The Truth About Environmental Illness, and Keeping Buildings Healthy. How about some introductory music for our guest, Chris? And all the girlies say. He gots it. And all my ladies say. He
1: gots it. Not everybody say. He gots it. He gots it. He got it, and all the girls said. he got it, and all my ladies say he got it. Not everybody said. he got it, he got it, he gots it.
0: All right. Well, I guess we got to the uh, go-to guy when it comes to uh, alleged injuries that deal that stem from either chemical or biological agents. Uh, Dr. Gotts, good afternoon, and thank you very much for joining us on IAQ Radio.
2: Well, it's a pleasure to be here and thank you for inviting me. That uh, introductory uh, music was pretty cool. Okay.
0: Well, good. Uh, we always at the, at the end we always post the link of the music and you know, we'll give it to you so you can uh, so you can download that. Can you tell us a little bit about what your company actually does and you know, how many people work there and so on and so forth?
2: Well, we actually have a number of companies, and in fact, in January fir- January 1st, we're going to be changing our name. We'll be the NMAS Group, which goes back to our original name, National Medical Advisory Service. Okay. And we have three divisions: uh, ICTM, I- the International Center for Toxicology and Medicine, uh, Building Health Sciences (BHS), and uh, uh, National Medical Advisory Service. And uh, they're they're a little different. Uh, we we are involved in all sorts of biomedical consulting and uh, over the years have done work with the federal government uh, have done work with the FDA and pharmaceutical issues I have done a great deal of environmental uh, consulting both indoor uh, and outdoor um, looking at uh, exposures from releases uh, from groundwater contamination and certainly many many indoor matters as well our BHS group does lots of building investigations and uh, we do uh, Uh, evaluations of people in the buildings and uh, uh, try to correlate whatever symptoms they may be having to uh, the building or not. And we just did a very large project with the federal government uh, involving 40 buildings, 40,000 people, 4 million data points, and about um, um, 7,500 environmental test points. And it turned into a massive job, lots of statistics, lots of analysis, and about a 300-page report.
1: So you were working for the federal government on that project?
2: Yes, that's correct.
1: Is that common, Dr. Gotts, that you'd be working for um, the building owners as opposed to someone trying to uh, maybe cause a problem for the building owners?
2: Uh, well, I don't know about cause a problem for. I mean, I, I think that's a, that sounds like a bit of a pejorative because I think there are people who are genuinely concerned who may not be trying to cause problems but have uh, dis- concerns or distress. Uh, we often work for building owners and managers, but uh, we I mean we've worked for um, condominium associations uh, and, and quite often for example
1: okay now that's that leads me to another question that uh, you know we were going through some uh, background information and one of the things I noticed that your companies do is you help people with you know determining how to make sure their building is a, is a healthy building, I guess, is the way to term it. Uh, can you give us some examples of what types of uh, recommendations you would make to a building owner? What are the most common problems, I guess?
2: Well, I think the, we're, we're unfortunately more often than we like brought into matters once there is a problem. I mean, we have some clients who bring us in very early to try to avoid uh, problems with their new buildings. We work, for example, for some uh, REITs, real estate uh, development groups, uh, and uh, where we actually inspect buildings before they are occupied, uh, in which case we look at the balancing of the HVAC system. We make sure there are no leaks in the building, that the plumbing is tight, uh, and that, um, you know, it's not likely to uh, become a wet damp environment. Um, more often, we're brought into uh, places once problems have occurred and uh, then what recommendations we make depends on the nature of the problem um, we make recommendations both about people and about um the building itself and the sources of water and how to clean them up and uh, what to do about
1: it do do you find that communication oftentimes is a, a big part of the the problem
2: there's a huge a huge issue of communication it's a very very important issue and and, and let me give you an example um One of our physicians uh, was uh, called into a building very recently where uh, some individuals were concerned about um, some possible uh, water intrusion and possible mold effects in a a particular office. Uh, And because we use physicians regularly to uh, talk to people, uh, we could get a proper history and and really begin to understand what, what was actually going on with that individual. Uh, because we actually found no evidence of water damage at all in the building. But this individual was allergic to cats. Uh, She had no cats at home, and she felt sick in the building. And so we did some cat uh, dander uh, measurements, and they were quite high in that office. And that's probably because some of the occupants previously in that office had cats. And you can find a lot of things like cat dander in offices. And unless one is thinking about things like that, it becomes kind of a knee-jerk thing to come in with testing devices and look for uh, mold or or other agents in the air, which may have absolutely nothing to do with what is going on with the individual.
0: Yeah, as, as a follow-up to that question, do you think that they actually had cats in those offices, or do you think that previous building occupants or current building occupants had cats at home and they were carrying the allergens in on their clothes and on their bodies in yes. the lunchbox?
2: Exactly. The latter is what happens. There have been a lot of measurements uh, specifically of cat, uh, of cat allergens in office buildings and uh, they can be quite high. Uh, it's because they're uh, airborne, they hang around the air and people who have cats drag them with them wherever they go. Uh, So it's just one of the many. This is just one sort of interesting little example, and we certainly don't find this that often. But it is something, the kind of thing that one needs to think about. And as physicians, we do think about things of that sort uh, when we uh, talk to people who, you know, believe that they have a problem in the indoor environment. And, in fact, in this case, she did, but it wasn't for reasons that she believed.
0: Did you know? Going back to this particular uh, situation, did this woman make her own diagnosis that um, you know that they were building problems that were causing the problem, or did she that diagnosis come as the result of you know her visiting a physician and the physician makes the diagnosis?
2: Well, in this case, it was her own, and and I, I want to distinguish between diagnosis and cause. I think those are two uh, very important distinctions to make. Um, she had a pretty uh, clear sense that she was suffering what seemed like an allergic reaction to something, and she was probably right. Mm-hmm. So, diagnostically, um, we would say that she probably had upper airway allergy uh, responses. Um, you know, something like hay fever, the sort of thing people would get with pollens or mold at times, or dog dander or cat dander, and so forth. Um, but she also attributed the cause of that, first of all, to the building, which was probably true, mm-hmm. but secondly, to mold, which was not true, mm-hmm. uh, because people have heard a great deal about you know, water intrusions and mold relationships and so forth, and whenever they don't feel well in an indoor environment, that's the first thing that comes to mind. Right. And sometimes that's correct, and sometimes it's not correct.
1: Now, uh, when we're talking about mold, I you know we have a lot of people on the show that uh, do mold either investigations or uh, a lot of remediation companies as well. I just mm-hmm. want to kind of get your overall opinion on mold investigation and remediation and uh, whether it's something that we, we should be doing uh, or maybe if we focus too much on that issue and um, – you know, how complex should these investigations become?
2: Uh, That's a very, very broad question, but let me try to uh, simplify it as much as possible. Um, Let me give you a couple of general principles. First of all, uh, if if you have a water intrusion in a building which is actually saturating um, uh, building materials, uh, for example, the wallboard, insulation, uh, carpeting, um, and you have bio- biological growth, mold, bacteria and other things, that, that needs to be cleaned up. Um, and the first thing that needs to be done is to find out where the water is coming from. So it could be an, in, an interior source, like a plumbing leak, uh, or it could be an exterior source uh, coming through the windows or through the roof. Uh, and once that is identified, then one can begin to find, figure out where the water has gone Uh, what areas are wet, and therefore what needs to be remediated. Uh, So remediation should be quite focused and begin with a clear picture of the sources or source of water. I mean, I've seen um, walls torn apart in um, office buildings and homes entirely torn apart when really there was one leak and one window uh, that required one small area of remediation. So sometimes this is overdone, uh, and it needs to be, I think, more focused.
1: So the the evaluation would become more important then to make sure that we're focusing on the correct cause.
2: Yeah, exactly right. It would be like, um, you know, a, a surgeon operating on somebody and simply uh, cutting, op- op- cutting open the abdomen and looking all around, taking out half the organs because someone had a pain in the belly. Uh, that's not... What we would like our doctors to do, and I don't think that's what we want our remediation people to do either.
1: Okay. Can Can you tell us a little bit about your opinion on the the uh, I guess allegation from people that they may be developing toxic effects from their exposure to mold in indoor environments?
2: Well, my my take on this, and uh, and it's not an uninformed one. I've read probably everything important that's been written on this subject. Is that uh, mold toxicity, actual toxicity from mycotoxins, these are uh, agents that are made by molds um, from indoor environmental exposure probably does not occur. Um, it certainly does occur in some situations. For example, in eating of highly contaminated materials, it occurs in farm animals, and it's a well, mold toxicity is a well-known phenomenon in farm animals. Uh, it also occurs in uh, individuals who eat uh, lots of contaminated grains, um, for, uh, for example, with aflatoxin contamination, one of the mycotoxins, uh, and that can cause liver disease, uh, and we see that in other parts of the world. But the indoor environmental levels of, and this is a pure toxicological issue, and the indoor environmental levels of mycotoxins, even in the most contaminated indoor environment, is too low, in my toxicological opinion, to actually produce toxic effects in individuals.
0: You know, one of the interesting things as I was uh, in preparing for this interview, I was Downloading different documents from your, your website, and there was a comment actually made in one of those documents that really made me think is that you know if you would, you know a lot of people like to take these nature walks and they'll go for a walk in the forest. and I never really thought about the fact that you know stirring up leaves when you're walking in the forest is probably uh, more likely to have high, to generate higher levels of you know mold spores and mycotoxins and all sorts of other things than you'd probably ever have in a building, but you know people complain about being in a building and don't complain about the stuff when they're taking their nature walk.
2: Well that's absolutely correct and and frankly it's there's a great inconsistency in people who some for some reason believe that mold in indoor environments at relatively low levels is somehow more dangerous than mold outside at very high levels. Not only in nature walks, but how about in landscaping uh, or gardening? Or people who work in uh, greenhouses Mm -hmm. uh, or in garden shops. I mean, they have uh, not just mold, but they have mold which can produce, which is capable, potentially, of producing mycotoxins. Aspergillus, penicillium, stachybotrys uh, are in those environments. Uh, And yet we don't see a rash of people in those environments, farmers or another group, uh, with mold toxicity.
1: Can you... Give us some idea of at what levels at least according to the the literature that you're familiar with that the exposure to these mycotoxins may cause some kind of health effects
2: Well I've done some uh, 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 calculations Dr. Kelman has done others and he's he's published uh, some of these uh, and some of his estimates are in the range of uh, several hundred thousand uh, mold spores per cubic meter chock full of mycotoxins, which um, most of them are not. Uh, and some of my calculations for other mycotoxins get us into the uh, millions to up to 10 million spores per cubic meter uh, filled with mycotoxins before you reach a level that is known to produce toxicity.
1: Uh, let me just clarify, is is toxicity the same in everyone or are there individuals who may react At lower levels than others.
2: Well, we don't know uh, that precisely uh, for mycotoxins, except to say this: that it is highly unlikely that there are people who uh, react at five orders of magnitude less than other people. In other words, uh, instead of requiring a million spores per cubic meter, they can react at at a hundred. That is most unlikely. Uh, We don't see that anywhere in any equivalent uh, toxicological um, uh, phenomenon or pharmacological phenomenon. For example, uh, if someone, uh, if a child eats a bottle of aspirin, uh, the child can die. If a child eats one aspirin tablet, uh, even a small child, uh, the child won't die. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, And there are, you know, dose responses of that sort which are fairly consistent. Uh, There are some people who can be more sensitive than others, but they are not so much more sensitive that one aspirin tablet taken by you or me uh, or someone who's sensitive is going to kill them from aspirin poisoning. Uh, And I think the same is true for mycotoxins. There's absolutely no reason to believe. And and if that weren't true, we would see an awful lot of sick people uh, in the landscaping business, in the gardening business, in the... uh, um, uh, and, and even the mulch-laying uh, business in the farming businesses, we would see a lot of sick people from mycotoxin toxicity, and we don't.
0: You know, I've got a question that um, really is more remediation-driven. You know, we send in teams of remediators to remediate these indoor environments that have suffered water intrusion, and we go to great extent. Uh, in number one, protecting these workers, we, we dress them up in Tyvek, uh, we make them breathe through respirators, uh, we create negative air pressure within that environment, uh, we uh, put up walls of, of plastic, and so on and so forth. Uh, do you think that we're overdoing this, you know, that we're going to just too much trouble and too much expense in terms of the remediation
2: And I've been involved in many of those situations. I've uh, helped oversee remediation, and uh, the people addressed like that uh, in those in those environments. I think at times that may be the case. Mm-hmm. But the reason to protect um, the people doing remediation,, um, particularly if they're remediating very significantly damaged uh, facilities, and we, we were involved in a couple of uh, um, assisted living facilities in Texas a few years ago where the, there was a lot of mold uh, contamination of the walls and the wallboard um, and, wall board and um, uh, insulation following a hurricane that that brought water in, into the first floor up to about two feet. Mm-hmm. And um, we actually let the residents stay there and that was a decision I had to make and uh, they, did, they did fine. But the remediators were in that kind of protective uh, equipment and the negative pressure um, systems and uh, containments. Mm-hmm. I think that is important for remediators for the following reason: they have a lot of exposure repetitively, mm-hmm. and uh, they are at risk for not so much toxicity. That's not what I'm—I'd be concerned about—but they are at risk for things like hypersensitivity pneumonia, uh, aspergillosis, you know, uh, actual infections with mold, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and hypersensitivity pneumonitis in particular. And there have been remediators who developed that. Mm-hmm. So I think for to protect people from that particularly when, when they tear things apart, they have hundreds of thousands of mold spores per cubic meter in their face, um, it, it is, is a prudent thing to do. Uh, there may be times when it's overdone, for example, if there are just a small amount of mold uh, issues, but I think the New York City guidelines more or less address that, and some of the other guidelines do as well. I mean, full containment and full respiratory protection is not necessary under all circumstances.
1: We've got a a couple text questions coming in. I'm going to try and combine it with uh, another question that I had. Um, Oftentimes, I'm I'm assuming, and and this has been confirmed by others, that when people are in water-damaged buildings, there are combinations of microbial contamination. It's not just mold and mycotoxins. You've got bacteria. You may have insect uh, fragments and their their, uh, feces and so on and so forth. Are there possible combinations of these contaminants that could explain some of the health issues that are blamed on mold exposure
2: well, there's certainly some that can, that can explain some allergies, for example, dust mites uh, which are quite allergenic are also associated with wet uh, wet facilities uh, homes in particular. Um, the question of um, Bacteria and things like endotoxins, uh, glucans, uh, volatile organic compounds, which are some of the things that have been claimed to produce problems, uh, are a bit unsettled. There's a little better data today uh, on the endotoxin issue, um, and there may be some respiratory effects associated with endotoxins. Uh, However, um, there's actually a very large study that shows that, that endotoxins are much more Uh, associated in uh, homes with uh, pets, uh, dogs, cats, um, uh, the nature of the cleaning, how often it's cleaned, the age of the home, and so forth, than they are with the degree of humidity or dampness. So the cause of the endotoxin existence uh, is not necessarily what many people think it is.
1: Okay. So... Let me uh, let me quickly. There was another text I want to just mention real quick, and then we'll take a, our halftime break here. There's there's this um, I guess discussion about the fact that molds in indoor environments are competing differently than molds in outdoor environments. Can you comment on that at all? Is that accurate to I, say? I, I, I don't
2: know what that means. I mean, people I hear people talk about that and say that, and 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 use uh, statements like that as some uh, suggestion of why indoors is worse than outdoors for mold exposure, and I have no idea where where that comes from. I've never seen any such literature. I've just heard people say it.
1: Okay, that's great. That's all we uh, that's all we can ask is to uh, get your opinion. Let's do uh, what we'd like to do here, real quick. Real quick is we're going to go to our halftime, and then we're going to bring you back for the second half of the show. Okay, see you in a bit. Thank you. Just hang on. Okay, for halftime today, we've had requests that that several people have sent in to discuss some of the upcoming conventions and events in 2009, and there's some really good ones on the list here. Um, After that, we have to break up for our sponsors, but real quick, IAQA has their annual convention in February uh, 24th through the 26th in Fort Worth. That will be a combination convention with the Air Conditioning Contractors of America, We've got the RIA Annual Convention and Exhibition. That will be coming up March 10 through 14 in Palm Springs. I missed one here. The NADCA 20th Annual Meeting and Exposition, and I hope the acronym, police don't get me here, the National Air Duct Cleaners Association, is the 9th through the 12th in Orlando, Florida. We've got um, a couple that are new this year, Approaches to Managing Mold in Buildings will be April 27th through the 29th in Orlando. That one's sponsored by the uh, University of Tulsa. Richard Shaughnessy's group out there asked us to make a, a little announcement on that. We've got the ASTM-Johnson Conference on Standardization of Mold Response Procedures that will be coming up July 13th through 15 in Burlington, Vermont. And we've got one that only comes into the United States uh, very rarely. I believe it's been almost 12 years since it was here before. And that's Healthy Buildings 2009 will be September 13 through 17 in Syracuse, New York. That's an international conference uh, that I believe the International Society for Indoor Air Quality and Climate is a uh, sponsor of and will be part of. So get your calendars out there and uh, see if you can't make some of these really interesting conferences coming up in 2009. We will have more information coming up on our website and on future shows.
0: Our newest sponsor is Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years at legends-enviro.com.
1: And Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for
2: the
0: IEQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information available at
1: ieconnections.com. DryEase products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. DryEase is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement
0: contractors shop at jondo Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services.
1: Okay, let's go back to Dr. Gotts for the second half here. I'm going to try and get to some of these other text questions here as we go along, but uh, we really wanted to move into indoor air quality. I, I was reading through some of the information that um, actually was sent to me by a a listener. And one was a presentation that was called IAQ learning from the unexpected, Dr. Gotts. I believe it was a presentation that you did. Um, Can you give us an example of what IAQ learning from the unexpected you have had along the way?
2: Yeah, I don't remember that particular presentation, I have to uh, confess, uh, but uh, we've, uh, we often uh, learn uh, from unexpected uh, uh, factors. I mean, for example, I mean, just the earlier example that I gave you of the um, uh, individual who was allergic to uh, cats, uh, and that was probably the cause of her um, um, symptoms in her indoor environment, even though you wouldn't think the cats would be there, and n- nor would she. Uh, but they cat dander is everywhere I mean that's kind of an unexpected um, uh, issue that one would not normally pick up um, we've had many situations of uh, in which we've had individuals who uh, have uh, complaints in indoor environments and and are convinced that the building is making them sick who've actually had other other illnesses um, that um, you know we talking to their physician or uh, interacting with them in in a, in, a, in a more in depth way have begun to um, uh, move them down the path towards getting properly diagnosed uh so those um those have been um, uh, those have been some unexpected findings but uh, things that um, speak well to the Sort of what we call our approach to indoor air investigation or indoor environmental investigations and that is white coats and hard hats because uh, we bring both into those uh, settings uh, to try to figure out what's really going on.
0: Um, you know, one of the, th- I, what I'd like to do is really talk about multi-chemical sensitivity. It's something that I've had some experience with and you've had a lot more and we've actually shared uh, at least one of these experiences as well. Um, you know what what do you what do you say when entire you know when a whole family you know claims that you know some event made them all sick and uh, you know it's same thing in an office you know something was done here and now everyone's sick and you have different gene pools you have different ages you know you have different sexes how do you respond to this how do you going a handle on this you know where do you begin um.
2: Well, there's not, there's not a single or a one-size-fits-all answer to that question. I mean, just as there are many reasons that people are sick and many reasons that people have symptoms, uh, you know, uh, scores of them, one has to look at those matters individually to try to get an answer to that question. I will give you a couple, though, of um, uh, conceptual things to think about. Uh, one is that symptoms are extraordinarily, symptoms per se, are extraordinarily common. I mean, people get um, um, uh, headaches, um, uh, 29% of people have headaches more than once a week, I mean, just routinely. Mm-hmm. Uh, people get fatigue, uh, 30% uh, claim fatigue uh, uh, more than once a week. Um, stuffy nose, uh, similarly, cough, itchy eyes, sore throat, these, all have very, these are very common types of symptoms. Now, if someone has such symptoms, let's say in a building uh, and is, believes whether it's true or not true, and it may be true that the building is actually doing something to produce those symptoms in that individual and starts talking to other people about those symptoms and, are do you have this? Do you have a headache? Are you tired at the end of the day? Are you having this problem or that problem or this symptom or that symptom? Everyone has those symptoms at times, and then they begin to focus on the source of them, and they remember the building as the as the potential source. And so it becomes a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy at times. Now, I'm not saying this is what happens all the time, but it certainly does at times. And there have actually been many published papers uh, about this phenomenon. Uh, there's also a phenomenon uh, that has been called... Um, uh, you know hazard perception and symptomatology related to that. There have been whole towns that have, and these are all published in the scientific literature. There have been whole towns with excesses of symptoms be- when they believed that their water was contaminated. One was in Edison Township, New Jersey. uh... They then found that the water, in fact, that was an, that was an error. There was nothing wrong with the water, but there, and their symptomatology eventually abated. But They were concerned, and those concerns led to symptom complaints. So symptom complaints are not uncommon, and if there's a general sense that there's something in the environment, whether it's in the air, in the water, uh, or anywhere else that is threatening the individual's health, it is human nature to ascribe those symptom complaints to those environments. And uh, so it's not uncommon to find a whole group of people uh, who have symptoms, and they genuinely have symptoms. I mean, I don't uh, deny that one bit. But they're ascribing them to an environmental factor, which in fact is at times and often not causal.
1: Let me – I've got a couple text questions that have come in, but I want to set it up with another question that I had, and that was – are some people more sensitive to certain
2: chemicals? Uh, yes, but I think it depends on what one means by sensitivity. Um, the It depends on whether you're talking about um, a chemical producing um, itching uh, of the nose and eye irritation or a chemical producing brain damage. Uh, those are two very, very different phenomena. Uh, and for example, people who have, who are atopic, who have allergies, are clearly more sensitive to the irritant effects of lower levels of chemicals than are people who are not atopic. I mean, I have allergies and I will, and I can sneeze when I read a newspaper because the ink and elements from that can actually cause some irritation. Um... I don't get head-to-toe symptomatology, and I don't get, uh, you know, I don't end up having to go to bed for six weeks uh, because of that. So, and that, I think, is the distinction that is important to make. I mean, there are certain symptoms which can be associated with certain chemicals, and in fact, a person may be more sensitive than than someone else uh, to those chemicals.
1: Okay, let me tie that into a question that was texted in, and I I think you pretty much answered it, but I just want to make sure that I I get this out for the listener. It says, how does Dr. Gotts explain progressive sensitivity and sometimes lethal response to low levels of other substances such as peanuts, penicillin, et cetera?
2: Well, I'm not sure exactly what that um, individual is talking about, except when you talk about peanuts and penicillin, those are... Those are, that, that individual may be talking about allergy. Yeah. Now, allergy is a different phenomenon. In there you have uh, specific antibodies to uh, the agent, and you have can develop allergic responses with very, very low levels of exposure. What I was talking about previously was really chemical sensitivity, which is not allergy. Allergy is different. And, and, and an allergic person may be so sensitive, and we'll use that word this time specifically for allergy, may be so sensitive that a very small amount of exposure can actually produce a very serious allergic response, and people actually can die. I mean, people have died from just eating small amounts of, um, of peanut oil when, in fact, they have peanut sensitivity. That's a different. That's different. That's, that's allergy, that could be measured, that can be identified, and that is a very specific finding and disorder.
0: I, I think I'd, I'd like to bring a couple of types of chemicals you know into the equation for discussion because I suspect that you get a lot of calls and, and questions and uh, have to, to deal with these. I guess the first would be fragrances. you know, whether it's perfume, uh, fragrance cologne that, that people wear or fragrance products. Uh, you know, within these environments. Uh, You know, what can you tell us about fragrances and sensitivity to fragrances?
2: Well, I think that uh, fragrances can be annoying to some people. Mm -hmm. Uh, They can also, in uh, people who are uh, atopic, uh, the word I mentioned before, which means have allergies, um, uh, perfumes can actually trigger an allergic response. Uh, So that, for example, an asthmatic, Uh, a severe asthmatic, not usually a mild asthmatic, but a severe asthmatic um, smelling perfumes may actually develop an asthma attack. So that kind of phenomenon is understood, it's um, uh, well described, uh, and it's quite specific. Um, I'm not sure what else individuals are talking about. If they're talking about uh, uh, brain damage or something from perfumes, um, uh, there's just no Toxicological support for that kind
0: of allegation. Uh, what about insecticides? And, and I think in many situations we're using safer insecticides these days than we were using before. Um, what about people's you know reactions to insecticides? You know, prior to using them in certain neighborhoods, you know, for instance, if my lawn's going to be sprayed, uh, the company that sprays the lawn has to post. Uh, all of these signs. Uh, there's a list of people in the state of Pennsylvania that uh, you know need to be notified prior to exposure, and and so on and so forth. Any comment on that?
2: Well, I think we're dealing with really two separate phenomena. One, one is the, the the nature of the science uh, of, of pesticide issues, and the other is the uh, concern that people have about chemical sensitivity not not here meaning allergy, but meaning. Uh, some kind of generalized sensitivity, which um, um, is not a uh, well scientifically established phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Um, high doses of certain pesticides, of course, can be toxic. I mean, organophosphate pesticides um, right. at high enough doses uh, can kill people. Sure. Um, those are usually not the doses that are used uh, to spray uh, lawns. Um, uh, although I have seen people sprayed. Uh, by crop duster airplanes, uh, field workers who have gotten quite ill and some have died mm-hmm. uh, because they didn't uh, get out of the way when the crop duster plane was spraying um, pesticides on the fields. Right. So they can be dangerous under those circumstances. But I think what what your um, listener is talking about is this, this phenomenon of low-level chemicals of all kinds, uh, sensitivity, which um, is not... In, in, as far as I'm concerned, a toxicological phenomenon. I think people may be concerned about these things. Uh, they may actually develop symptoms because of those concerns, but um, it's not a it's not a toxic. Um, uh, there's not a toxic basis for that.
1: So we're, we don't deny that people or individuals can become sensitized to chemicals or even bioaerosols as as a result of exposure. I mean that's. That's pretty commonly, am I correct in saying that's pretty commonly um, recognized?
2: It depends on the chemical. I mean, certainly the bio, by sense, if, and we have to be clear in our terms. If by sensitized, we're using the official medical definition, which means allergic, uh, people certainly can become allergic to bioaerosols. Uh, they can also become allergic to certain chemicals, but not to that many of them. I mean, there are some chemicals like isocyanates, which can produce allergy, but um, uh, benzene and toluene and xylene and gasoline do not produce allergy. Mm -hmm. So you don't become sensitized in the allergic sense to those. So one has to distinguish between and among various chemicals and agents and also get our terms clear when we talk about sensitivity.
1: What about? I've got another question that came in. I want. I'm not sure I fully understand it, but I think you will. If people will have these acquired immunological or neurological hypersensitivities, and that could lead to an inflammatory reaction, um, could that be responsible for some of the symptoms people attribute to toxic mold exposure?
2: I, I don't know what that person is talking about. Okay. Quite frankly, I don't know what. When they say a neurologic reaction, which can lead to an inflammatory reaction, I that just, that's medical, that that doesn't make any sense, uh, toxicologically and medically.
1: Okay. So neurologic hypersensitivity doesn't necessarily lead to an inflammatory reaction?
2: I, I don't know what that does know. And that, there are some people, I think, who have made such a claim, but uh, there's no scientific basis for that uh, statement.
1: Okay. Is there
0: a difference, I, I guess, between a psychosomatic response and uh, what's known as hypochondria?
2: Uh, the primary difference is the the, the the year in which the term was used. Um, uh, hypochondria is an older term. Uh, psychosomatic, or somatiform, or somatization, are, are more modern terms, um, and they should never be, one thing I want to make clear when we when we use those terms is that they should never be considered pejoratives. Um, people uh, have asked me uh, and, and others, oh, so you're saying that this is all in my head or this is all in so, so-and-so's head as though they're being dismissed and they don't really have symptoms. Well, that's not true. I mean, you can have terrible symptoms for reasons that don't actually mean you're being, for example, poisoned. Uh, look for, just give an example. How about someone who um, is speaking in front of an audience and has stage fright? Mm-hmm. Uh, that person can have palpitations, his heart's racing, uh, they feel flushed, they can faint. Um, those are physical, physiological responses to an emotional event. Mm-hmm. And so there is nothing less. Um, uh, valid about uh, emotional, emotionally originated uh, responses than toxicologically originated responses. I mean, it is not a pejorative to to suggest that someone has a, a emotionally based responses.
1: Let's go back for a moment. There, there was a a, a section I believe in on a paper that I read. We you were talking about the difference between a differential diagnosis and a causation assessment. Can you yes. walk us through that?
2: Yes, they're entirely different. I mean, the, a doctor, if you go to a doctor with a headache, uh, the job of the doctor is to try to figure out what inside your body is causing the headache. In other words, if, is it a brain tumor? Is it eye strain? Is it a neck strain? Is it a sinus problem? um... you know so there are many things that can cause a headache and then the doctor will um, come up with a what's called a differential diagnosis and that is a list of possibilities of things that could be responsible for this headache and work the patient up do the appropriate tests and maybe a brain scan an MRI scan uh... you know there may be a variety of tests that one would do um, and then come to a final diagnosis and the diagnosis would be what internally inside the body has caused that headache. Causation analysis asks what outside the body, if anything, uh, was responsible for the disorder which led to the symptoms. So for instance, if the person ended up having a brain tumor and wanted to know whether it was the cell phone use that caused my brain tumor, that would be a causation question. So is there an external environmental or other factor? It could be diet, it could be airborne, it could be any kind of external factor that can be the explanatory factor for the disorder that was diagnosed through the differential diagnosis by the doctor. And it's causation analysis that discusses and deals with the determination of what factors led to the disorder that the person actually has.
1: Okay, so you have this internal disorder that may or may not, it may have been created by their genetic makeup, correct?
2: Oh, absolutely, or or by family history. Uh, sure. Okay. I mean, like, like heart disease, or you know, if you have a, a heart attack, I mean, the the cause may be predominantly genetics, uh, bad diet, uh, um, no exercise, uh, you know, a variety of things like that. But um, you know, the diagnosis is coronary artery disease Uh, the cause may be a variety of risk factors uh, which one can delineate at times and sometimes not or it may be in the case of for example some of our famous athletes who died it may have been uh, use of cocaine mm -hmm. that caused uh, the heart attack and that would be a causation that would be part of the causation assessment what caused this heart attack in this individual
1: we've had a series of uh shows on home health assessments Um, and I'm I'm curious what are your thoughts on the fact that don't MDs oftentimes have to rely on the differential diagnosis they really don't have the um, I don't want to say the ability or the tools but they don't have the uh, maybe the finances available to go out and see if there's some other outside cause
2: well what's what's the question in that? In other words, should they be doing that, or should they be ascribing a cause when they don't know the answer? I mean, what I've seen too often is an att- a causal attribution which is made by a physician who doesn't have the slightest bit of information about about what actually the potential causes might have been. and it's an important an important aspect of that is that physicians aren't really trained or educated in the in the um, uh, field of causation assessment. For example, someone who's treating cancer, an oncologist, that person is educated to diagnose the cancer and to figure out what the best treatment course is. That person is not, as part of his training, her training in medical school or in residency programs, uh, trained to figure out where the cancer came from or why the person got cancer. So it's not part in general of medical training, and um, physicians will often ascribe a cause, and frequently it's the cause that the patient has brought to them. so the patient says, "Well, did this cause it?" and the doctor it's the easiest thing to do for the doctor to say yeah that that sounds right or that that yeah that sounds okay to me
1: i see so that, that, but aren't they kind of caught in a catch twenty two if they can't if like an insurance company won't or the patient doesn't have the funds to find out if there is some other external cause?
2: Well, physicians are in a difficult position. I mean, they, 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 are, they have to make decisions uh, like that at times when they really don't have the um, information or, at time, or often the expertise uh, to uh, upon which to base those decisions. So doctors will say things without really knowing the right answer. They'll just make, more or less, make something up.
1: Do you see any change in that? Are insurance companies on occasion hiring your company to come in and do a causation assessment? or Do you see any potential of this changing down the road?
2: Well, I don't know. If I mean, we've been doing that for 30 years, and so have many other people. I mean, uh, there there are many people involved in, in reviewing matters and trying to assess uh, causation uh, when, because you know, for many reasons, one of which has to do with the fact that treating physicians really don't do it effectively. So there's no, there's nothing new in that. I, I don't know that they're doing it any more than they used to. I think it depends on the, on the nature of the matter, the size of the matter, the uh, level of concern of the matter. Uh, but um you know, that's one of the things that we do at times, as do other
1: people. Yeah, we've, we've seen it with the home health assessment, uh, kind of a movement where there's starting to be, uh, we've had, um, let's see, Dr. Sublette was on, and uh, then we had uh, Kevin Kennedy from Children's Mercy, where they go out, and they're working more with allergists. Um, mm-hmm. And they're actually going out and doing these, I guess what you would call causation assessment. Uh, mm-hmm. to try and follow up on the diagn- you know, the, the medical tests. And, and they seem to think there's a trend toward the health insurance companies covering this. And I just was curious if you had seen any change in that respect. In-
2: well, no, I, I, I don't know that I've seen a change, but I'm happy to hear that because I think it's something that uh, really, need, really needs to be done.
1: Okay, let's see. Cliff, did you have any more on your list there? Yeah, I actually
0: had I had a couple that I kind of wrote down as as I kind of went along. And uh, one of the things that I do is I have to in my job is I do technical support for the products that our company manufactures. And it seems to me that I get more questions from women uh, than I do from men about uh, the safety of these products and 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 so on and so forth. And uh, and, and in litigations that our company's been in uh, in the past, it just seems that the the litigant was a woman probably the age of maybe 35 to 55, and they generally, you know, had some sort of exposure to a product uh, that we made and that was applied by, by someone, but in you know, going through the depositions and the discovery and so on and so forth, there was always this pre-existing situation of emotional, um, you know, they, they were seeing psychiatrists, they were seeing psychologists, and and so on and so forth. And I was just wondering if, you know, whether you, you can comment on that.
2: Uh <laughs> That that is that is one of the more loaded questions that you've uh, that you've provided me, and I <laughs> okay. want to be I want to be very very careful with this uh, with, an, uh, with this answer. I mean, okay. it is uh, it has been reported extensively uh, in the literature, including by many people who are very very strong supporters of toxicological theories of um, things like MCS, that women constitute about seventy five percent of the population uh, uh, of those patient populations. Now. But why that is, um, I, I don't know, and I'm not going to make a comment about it. Okay. Uh, that's probably true. Um, now, whether people have, and, and I certainly am not going to suggest that everybody who has any kind of uh, complaint uh, that can't readily be explained has, a, has an extensive psychiatric history, but, but we certainly do see that at times, that people uh, who have, are emotionally um, uh, on edge, uh, uh who have uh, kind of emotional problems or who have major psychological problems like depression or anxiety or uh things for which they're taking med- medication or being treated are more vigilant and are more potentially more susceptible to uh perceived uh assaults from outside uh, from outside agents shall we say so i think that they're that uh, I, I would by no means say that this is universally true, but but a, a good number of people that we see do have um, previous psychological issues.
1: Okay. Okay. Before we wrap things up here, I just want to one more time go and uh, thank our sponsors. Then I want to bring Dr. Gotts back, and we have two final questions. So hang in there with us, listeners, and I hope we got of the uh, questions that were texted in. If not, text them in one more time, and I'll uh, I'll try and get to them now.
0: Our newest sponsor is Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years at legends-enviro.com.
1: And Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com.
0: Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IEQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information available at
1: ieconnections.com. DryEase products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. DryEase is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors
0: shop at J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of I E Q Radio when you inquire about their products and services.
1: Okay. Okay. Dr. Gotts, I've got two more things I wanted to uh, run by you here. We had um, mentioned a report from the GAO um, when we had talked earlier, and I just wanted to mention another one that a, a listener typed in, damp indoor spaces and health do you have yes. any uh, comments on those two reports? Let's take the GAO com, uh, report first. Um, what do you think they're, t- they're saying in that report?
2: Well, uh, they're, 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 first, the GAO report, which came out in September of uh, 2008, I actually have it in front of me, it's called Indoor Mold, Better Coordination of Research on Health Effects and More Consistent Guidance Would Improve Federal Efforts. And really it's a report to Congress um, that talks about all of the funding that's going on and the different kinds of studies that are being undertaken. And uh, it it doesn't tell you anything about uh, what, it doesn't have any opinions expressed in this document about what uh, the health effects are or anything like that. It just simply is a discussion of the current state of funding and some of the research that is being undertaken uh, currently under federal grants. So it's a grant document. It tells you about the grants that have been awarded. Um, the other uh, report, the, I, I think you were referring to the National Academy Institute of Medicine report, correct, 2004, is a is a very good um, review of the state of the science um, uh, on so-called damp indoor spaces, and I say so called because even they had very difficult time defining that, and they they spent many pages telling you why, um, and also on effects of mold. Uh, in indoor environments and it came really to down to a a number of fairly basic conclusions which are expressed in in two tables uh, that are in that document i think they are tables 5-12 and 5-13 and essentially it said that both of those situations might um... be associated with particularly asthma in children but there were very few other uh, associations uh, identified. In fact, many were specifically delineated as being not uh, shown, uh, such as uh, brain effects, uh, gastrointestinal effects, uh, immunological effects, um, or any of uh, chronic fatigue or any of the other major organ system type problems uh, that some people complain of.
1: Okay, one more um... Go back a little, Cliff. There was one more I wanted to ask here about HVAC systems. Um, we had a, a text that came in about mechanical systems and and whether or not these are I, I guess whether or not these are oftentimes part of the problem in your indoor air quality investigations and and what would I guess be the most common issues that uh, you run across with with respect to mechanical systems.
2: Yeah, I'd probably have to go next door to our expert who who deals with that much more than I do, but uh, I can give you a few from memory. I mean, uh, there are um, times when you have uh, chillers, particularly our uh, HVAC uh, air conditioning systems, particularly in the south, which are too powerful, and they um, uh, cool before they dehumidify. So you can get um, uh, high humidity uh, indoors. Uh, and uh, I think that's being corrected and is happening less now, but we used to see that uh, commonly. Uh, we had a, we have another situation in a building in Chicago in which we're working in an assisted living facility, and uh, there the uh, ducting system was simply not, not installed properly, and so it uh, kind of ended at a, at a at a wall, and when the heat turned on in the winter, uh, the windows became... Um, uh, you know, the, the indoor and outdoor temperature differential was such that there was a tremendous amount of condensation and uh, water intrusion and actual mold growth. And so, you know, sometimes it's installation, uh, sometimes nature of the unit, and sometimes it's the maintenance. Uh, you know, there are uh, messy, dirty filters um, and just improper ma- maintenance of, of the units as well. I guess
1: I I could go on for a couple hours, I think, here, but I want to ask one more, and then we've got to uh, wrap up here. But um, do you see any potential or possibility down the road that, you know, a a lot of these studies in my reading say that there isn't any current evidence that exists that shows that multiple chemical sensitivity or mycotoxin exposure, etc., may lead to these um, toxic effects that we've been talking about. Do you see any possibility that down the road there may be evidence that shows that through synergistic effects or combinations of the endotoxins, the mycotoxins, the the chemicals that are in the buildings, the um, uh, other life factors, et cetera, that maybe people are developing these chemical sensitivities that right now we just can't prove?
2: well uh you know, we never say no in science, and certainly um uh, you know scientific uh, advances change our um, our our understanding of uh, biological issues and so that it, 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 while it's possible um, I can tell you that there is not a great deal of biological plausibility to uh, some of the claims that we that we see uh, and um, uh, i'm not and, and there have been a lot of studies i mean this these are not um uh, these are not uh, a- areas which are devoid of research. I mean, there are loads of studies in the scientific literature dealing with uh, uh, alleged interactions between agents, um, uh, alleged synergistic effects uh, of low-level agents and so forth, and I, I just don't see it. Uh, now, whether it might something might turn up, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know, but my-, my sense is that I doubt it.
0: Okay. Cliff? Okay. Well, what we always like to do, Dr. Gotts, is give our guests the last word. If there's anything that you would like to add, if there was a question that you wanted us to ask that we didn't, if there's a correction to the record that you want to make or revisit, uh, we'd like you uh, to do that.
2: Well, there is uh, no. I think that uh, we've covered a good deal of uh, good deal of ground. I mean, if there's anything that I want to say, uh, it would be that uh, you know there are times when people have uh, um, uh, have talked about uh, and I, something that we mentioned before, and I want to uh, reemphasize this: that um, uh, if there is no toxicological basis for symptoms, then we're simply dismissing people and telling them that they uh, just need to go away. And that's not true. I mean, if people have symptoms, uh, they have problems that need to be addressed. And it doesn't matter what, what the symptoms are caused by. Um, there are there are ways of addressing symptoms. And so I want to make it clear that um, I've never personally uh, dismissed people's symptoms or tried to minimize them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I want to thank you all very much for giving me the opportunity of speaking with you.
0: Well, that's great. Uh, one other question. How can our... Uh, Guest, or how can our listeners get in touch with you? Would you provide an email or phone number they could call?
2: Um, I will give you um, uh, an email address. Sure. It's um, gots at com. Now, depending on the number of requests I get, I may or may not be able to get to everyone. I understand. I'll, sure. I'll do my best. I got you.
1: Perfect. Great. We really appreciate that. And I want to first thank our uh, our guest today, Dr. Ronald Gotts, for joining us and for uh, discussing these issues. We appreciate you coming on, taking time out of your busy schedule. I also want to make sure I thank my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnick. Always a pleasure, Joe. Uh, uh, the Wingman, Chris Boyzell, for helping us out at the uh, controls. I want to say uh, to Dr. Dieter, get well out there real quick and come back and see us soon. But most importantly, to our growing group of uh, loyal listeners, it looks like you guys had a great time online uh, beating each other up here today or uh, bantering back and forth, I guess I should say. Please come back and join us next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio.
0: This has been another IAQ Radio production.